If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to continue in our study together of the book of Acts. Um, just to kind of give you a roadmap for where we're going in the, in the next few weeks ahead, uh, I plan to uh, work our way through Acts through uh, the month of February, the month of March, and uh, we'll lead into to Easter, and, uh, and then we'll have a, a short break from the book of Acts, about four weeks, to um, kind of talk about four words that God has really laid upon my heart and my mind, and I just want to keep putting them in front of you in conversation and from the pulpit as, as much as I can. But four important words that I feel like God has given uh, to me recently, gather, grow, give, and go. Gather, grow, give, and go. I'm not talking about a basketball play, a give and go. I'm talking about uh, gathering to worship Christ and lift up his name, uh, growing as disciples so that we can go out and make other disciples. That's our mission. Uh, giving. Not just of our finances, but of ourselves, our time, talent, resource, uh, everything we have, giving it to the Lord and, and giving it to his, his church, and then going with the gospel. We can't leave off the go. We can gather, grow, and give, but a part of the Great Commission is that we go with the gospel. And so when we go to uh, deliver meals on Wednesday nights to the men's shelter, uh, we go there in the name of the gospel. We go there looking for open doors to talk to people about Christ, and that's why we do that. We want to feed stomachs, but we really, our, our main goal, and it's not a secret goal, it's not, we're not going to slip it in there, but it's to feed people's souls. Um, and that's what, if you look at Hebrews, that's what my job says that I'm required to, to be about, is uh, the, the feeding, the nourishing of and caring of souls. And, and those are eternal. And so we want to make sure we, we keep that in the forefront of our hearts and our minds. Gather, grow, give, and go. Two folks to uh, mention to you before we jump in to Acts 9. Uh, Francis Packer, George's wife, had surgery on Thursday or Friday morning. Uh, first thing to repair a broken wrist and uh, bones kind of got overlapped. She's doing well uh, and uh, appreciate your prayers for her. Wanda Parker shared with us about a week and a half ago that she has been diagnosed with cancer, with breast cancer. And uh, she is battling um, that right now and looking at the road ahead and kind of what awaits them, and uh, also her husband, Robert, has Parkinson's, you probably know, and so they've got a lot going on, and so just remember them, not only in prayers, but if there are practical ways that you can help meet needs, you know, reach out to them if you have that relationship. Um, one of the great things that I, I say often whenever I can is they are very plugged into a Sunday school class with, with Tony. Tony's their teacher, and the benefit of plugging into a smaller group is that you know people and you're known by people, and when you have that relationship, you're able to help care for one another when there are needs. That's the way that the Jerusalem church uh, took care of each other with 20,000 people. They didn't gather under a big mega uh, football stadium dome. They gathered in small places and, and they cared for one another. So just remember them, if you will, going forward. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 31. <clears throat> uh, and I've titled my sermon... I couldn't come up with a whole lot of creative stuff this week. That well ran dry on me, so it's the conversion of Saul. So I hope that's pretty straightforward. hope that kind of spells out what we're, what we're doing. But let's read that together so we kind of have an idea of where we're headed. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, from John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. They weren't called Christians yet. They were called followers of the way. So these people belong to the way. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, 
He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in. And lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taken food. He was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? <clears throat> and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. That's the Greek-speaking Jews. But they were seeking to kill him also. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, that's the region around Jerusalem, and Galilee and Samaria, that's the region north of there, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, being the church, multiplied. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to take this word and, and help us to see in it this morning what you have for us, Father. We know that there is something you want to say to our hearts. Doesn't matter the rain, doesn't matter the number of people in here this morning. There's something you want to say to us, and it's from your word, and it's through your spirit. And we pray that we will be able to listen with open ears and clean and pure hearts. Lord, we pray that our sin, that that maybe we even carried in these doors today, God, that we would forsake it in our hearts and our minds and we would seek to hear what you have today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, in Acts chapter 9, we read about uh, the conversion of, of Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee who went from being what, what one writer called a fire-breathing terrorist to a gospel-proclaiming evangelist in one sovereign encounter, one sovereign collision, if you will, with Christ. You know, you think about it this morning, we are very culturally entrenched uh, with religion. Certain religions are uh, unpopular in certain parts of the country. You know, around here, uh, if someone were to walk in here, um, perhaps dressed in Middle Eastern garb with a robe and maybe a turban or something of that nature, uh, because of the events 17 years ago, we would likely be uh, suspicious. We would be concerned. Uh, and, and, and to some degree, you know, that, that's kind of the culture that we, we live in. But Saul, in a lot of ways, we need to step back and realize that Saul was, uh, he was breathing threats. He was breathing murder against the disciples that were living in the regions around Jerusalem. He was a terrorist to the first century church. So if we were living that day and we were gathered somewhere, uh, he would be coming in here seeking to arrest me. He would want to arrest you. He would look for Carol Proctor, our deacon chairman. And uh, he would look for Bradley Allen, who gave our offer in prayer. And he would look for folks and say, hey, you're coming with me. I'm locking you up and I'm taking you away to be arrested. He was a fire-breathing terrorist and God transformed him into a gospel-proclaiming, a gospel-preaching evangelist in one car crash, so to speak, one intersecting collision with the Holy Spirit. I would say that after the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Saul's conversion encounter is perhaps the most important event in the history of our world. And you say, well, that's a, that's a big claim to make about this one, this one event that, that happened here. But think about this. How many books did Saul or Paul come to write in the New Testament? Thirteen. At least 13. Some people say Hebrews was a 14th book. But he wrote by number, not content, but by number, half of our New Testament. That has shaped Christianity across the world. So this one man has this interaction with the risen Lord Jesus. And because of that interaction, he goes on to write half in number of our New Testament. He's planted churches all over the Roman Empire that helped Christianity spread. This one man had an unbelievable Impact. So nations and cultures and families and all kinds of things were shaped by this conversion. So before we talk about who he became after, let's look at who he was before. By birth, Paul, or I should say Saul, was a Jew. By citizenship, he was a Roman. By education, he was a Greek. He was born in the city of Tarsus, known for its university. He had impeccable Jewish credentials. He studied under the most gifted, uh, the most respected rabbi of his day, a man named Gamaliel. He was immensely successful. He was wildly zealous. He was an aspiring Pharisee who saw Christianity as a dangerous heresy. He saw it as an offshoot, a spinoff of Judaism, and he made it his personal mission to stamp out Christianity. So if he came into your high school, uh, Jada, he would look for the FCA club. And he's going to come in there and lock y'all up and take y'all away. Because he wants to stamp out any flicker of this Christian, uh, what he thinks is a religion. What he doesn't understand is it's a relationship that is changing this empire. So what happened to Saul on the day that he was going to Damascus where he collided with Christ? Five ways I've broken it up. We're just going to walk through the story. We've already read it. In verse 1. We see it says he was, I love this, breathing threats, breathing murder, okay? 
Uh, if somebody comes up to you and they begin talking to you and they've got bad breath, do you notice it? Yes. If you're talking to them and you have bad breath, do they notice it? Yes. How do you know that they notice it? They get a funny look on their face, right? You kinda, they they kind of look like this. They're a little startled and you kind of think, oh, man, maybe I didn't you know, take care of some things this morning. Well, Saul was breathing threats. He was breathing murder. That, that vapor was spreading out before him. Literally, I think what Luke wants us to understand is that threats and murder uh, and stomping out Christianity was the air that he breathed. It was what he lived for. If you stop breathing this morning, what's going to happen, Dark? You're going to die, right? If you stop breathing, you're going to die. You say, well, why is that? Because you need air. Saul almost needed this personal mission of stamping out Christianity to exist. And so here's what happens. He's in Jerusalem, and he finds out 140 miles away in the city of Damascus, a pretty large city, there's a group of followers. Uh, they're not called Christians. They're called followers of the way. We say, where did they come from? When Stephen was persecuted and killed, people spread out. And people found out we can go to Damascus because it's a large city and there's some protection there for people who are followers of the way. And so they made a six-day journey to Damascus for safety. Well, Saul finds this out. And here's what you need to understand. Saul was governed by the Roman rules of the empire, but the Romans treated Judaism as its own kind of government because they had their own rules and everything like that. And so the, the Romans gave the Jews permission to carry on their religion because it was an ancient religion. And so Saul did not go to the Romans to get permission to kill the Christians or arrest them. He went to... The high priest, and he had to get letters. Basically, <clears throat> will you sign off on saying that it's okay for me to go take care of this? So the high priest gives him permission, and Saul heads out for a six-day journey for Damascus. Around the fifth day of that journey, Saul and his entourage get near the city when this blinding light flashes in their eyes. Now, on the way to school every day, right now, this time of year, uh, when we turn a certain road, me and the boys look up, and the, if you're going towards CVS at about 8 o'clock in the morning, the, the light is almost blinding right now this time of year. It's just terrible. And I'm, I'm shielding my eyes, and I'm trying to see if the light's green or yellow or red. I can't tell, and I'm hoping the officer's not behind me in case I you know, run that light. But you can't see. And I told the boys this week, I said, do you see how bright that is? I said, when Saul was converted to Christ, I said, that light was so blinding that it wasn't like he couldn't see if the stoplight was red or not. It knocked him to the ground. The light blinded him. What was that, you say? It was the blinding light of the glory of Christ. So he falls to the ground, and he hears his name called out of this light. He couldn't see anything that we know of, but he hears his name called Saul, Saul. We say, where's there another time in the Old Testament when somebody had their name called with a, a, a blinding light, so to speak? Moses, Exodus chapter 3. When he's there at the bush and the bush is burning up, but it won't burn down, he hears his name called twice, and God does the same. Notice what he says. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. He didn't say, why are you persecuting them, or why are you persecuting the church, or even my church? He says, personally, why are you persecuting me? What does that tell us about how Jesus understands and resonates with our suffering that we go through today? He takes it personal. He takes it. I don't believe he feels the nails any longer. He's got a glorified, resurrected body. He's not on the cross, okay? But he understands and he resonates with our suffering. The book of Isaiah calls him a man of what? Sorrows. Who suffered. By his stripes we are healed. He understands what it is to suffer. I think sometimes 
we forget, and this is a hard thing to say um, and a hard thing to hear, but we forget in the Christian life that there is going to be suffering. What did Jesus say about Saul? I'm going to show him how much he must, what? Win a popularity contest, right? No. Suffer. And so Jesus understands. I love the grace in this collision. Think about it. Jesus could have struck him dead right there. Just could have slapped him down, struck him dead and took his life. Or he could have allowed him to go on in his sin and just allow that sin to overrun and consume his life and ultimately end him in a bad, bad place. But he didn't do that. He didn't leave him in his sin. I love what Max Licato says in, his, in one of his books. He says, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He so loved the world that he gave his son. He didn't give Jesus so that we would stay in our sin. He didn't give Jesus so that we would continue on perpetuating bad habits that lead us towards sin and away from Christ. He loves us the way we are, but he doesn't want us to stay that way. It's the process called sanctification, made more and conform more to the image of Christ. So watch this. God pursued the unrighteous pursuer. You see the tables turning? Saul was the pursuer. Now, who's pursued him? God has in Christ. And he confronts him in his sin. Because why? He needs to rescue Saul from who? From Saul. He needs to rescue Saul from himself. And one of the things the scripture teaches us is that God rescues us from ourselves sometimes. So he says, go to Damascus. And his followers lead him there like a little child. For three days, he sat where? In darkness. Sounds like a a death and resurrection of sorts. He sits in darkness. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He's processing things in prayer with Christ. So there's a confrontation. Second, there's a commissioning. Jesus commissioned Saul to his service. In verse 10, there's a disciple living in Damascus named what? Ananias. Is this the same Ananias that lied to Peter? No, how do we know? That guy got struck dead. (laughs) He's gone. He's off the scene. This is a different Ananias. And God calls Ananias by what? His name. He calls him by name and he gives him orders. Go find Saul. He knows you're coming. Lay your hands on him so he can regain his sight. What's Ananias' response? Lord, this guy's been terrorizing your people. Almost like God doesn't know. Don't you know what? He's been doing, don't you know who he is? He's got a reputation around here. Lord, you want me to go lay hands on him? He was coming to lay hands on me. It's almost like if there was a sniper up on that building across the street there. And one of you saw him drop his gun. And you walked over and you picked the gun up and you said, hang on, I'll be right up. And you take the gun up to the top floor and you say, here, here's your weapon back. Take your best shot. That's essentially what Ananias was thinking. He's coming after us with intent to kill. And you want me to go lay hands on him. What does God say? Go. He's my chosen instrument to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. And where does Saul take the gospel? Right here in the book of Acts. To the Gentiles, to a king, to Israelites. So Saul or Paul is boldly going to go really where no man had gone before. So God chose Saul. Who is Saul? Christianity's greatest arch enemy. And what's God going to do with him? Turn him into Christianity's greatest champion. Let that sink in for a second. Maybe you've heard of Saul for 60 years. or Maybe this is the first 30 minutes you've heard 
of Saul. Let that sink in. He wrote half of our New Testament. He went on three missionary journeys, planting churches, and helped evangelize an empire. And listen, God chose him. And you may say to yourself this morning, I've got a whole list of reasons why God can't choose me. I promise they can't keep up with Saul. Is there anything too hard for God, church? Is there anyone too far that God can't reach them? What does the scripture say? Is his arm too short to save? It's a rhetorical question. The rhetorical device demands a negative answer. His arm is not too short to save. Sometimes we're tempted, aren't we, to give up on people, aren't we? We all know someone. It may have been you at some point. You were tempted to give up on yourself and said, there's no hope for me. I will never turn around. My, my relationship, my spouse, my friend, my neighbor, they're, they're just too far away for God to reach them. Do we really want to believe that about God? More than that, is that what the Bible teaches about God? No, there's no one too far gone that God cannot reach them. So Ananias goes and finds him and explains what's going on. And he lays hands on blind Saul and he prays. Listen to verse 17, I love it. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. In the Baptist church for many years, well before I was born, that became just a nice little tagline we threw on the front of somebody's name brother so-and-so sister so-and-so think about what you're saying you're saying we're a part of the same family i'm not just brother josh or brother michael or brother tony or or, or sister fran or sister nana if you're saying that what you're saying is we belong to the same family by what adoption through the blood of jesus christ we belong together he looks at this man who was trying to kill him his bitter enemy and he says You are now my, what? My brother. Saul the bitter enemy became Saul the brother in Christ. What's the gospel doing? Tearing down barriers. Breaking down barriers. Verse 18, scales fell from his eyes. Just like the blinders came off, he got up and he was what? Baptized. He was immersed in water to show the old Saul with its sin was gone and dead. And he took some food. That's the commissioning. Number three. The Jews are conspiring against Saul, verses 20 through 30. He stayed there in Damascus for a while until, what, he wore out his welcome. (laughs) They got tired of hearing uh, of him. They got tired of him being around the city. And he made himself public enemy number one. Verse 21, everyone who heard him preaching Jesus as the Messiah was floored. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. Because they knew the reason that he came was to prosecute. Not to preach to them. And now what had happened? He became one of them. And so it says he grew stronger. Probably meaning spiritually. And he stumped the Jews in debate. Here's what we need to remember. God blessed Saul before his conversion. With some natural abilities of intellect. He was born as an unbeliever like all of us are. And he was steeped in Judaism. But he had an unbelievably keen mind. Probably one of the most brilliant minds that's ever lived. You know what God did when he... he, saved him, and Saul was converted, he used that natural ability now for his good and for his glory and his kingdom. All of us in this room have natural abilities and spiritual abilities, and we come to give those. We gather, grow, and what? Give of ourselves, and we go. 
Verse 23, after many days, we say, well, how long? There are several theories about how long this period of time lasted. Galatians chapter 1 talks about three years where he went into Arabia and came back to Damascus. MacArthur says it was most likely three years that passed between verse 22 and verse 23. During this time, you say, what was Saul doing? We don't exactly know, but we, we have some idea that he was studying, preparing, and getting ready for the next leg of his race. Verse 23, he learns about the plot to kill him. So he goes to kill people in this city, and now what's happening? He's the one being hunted. The hunter turns into the hunted. And his disciples, I love this, they orchestrate this Indiana Jones-like escape. Picture the, the, the city, it's dark outside, the city walls. People lived in the city walls. They weren't just like this wall. They were 8 and 10 feet thick and had houses. And remember Rahab from the Old Testament? She lived in the city wall. Well, there was a big window, and they put him in a basket, and they put the basket on the outside of the wall, and they start lowering him down the outside of this city wall so he can escape at night. Now, you say, well, you skip verse 17. If you go back to the commissioning, what did God tell Saul he was going to do? He was going to suffer for his name. Did everything come up roses when Saul walked that aisle and signed that card at the altar that day? No. He didn't walk in the aisle, by the way. He didn't sign any card. The clouds didn't roll back and the sun didn't just come in. Tony Morita says this, Paul's words give us a needed dose of realism. Living in a fallen world is difficult. Is that true, church? Amen? It's hard living in a fallen world. And following Jesus in a fallen world involves suffering. But also in the midst of trials, we can rely on and rejoice in the all-sufficient grace of Jesus. I heard this past week, Jerry Lewis was preaching Virgie Fletcher's funeral. He had a real close relationship with them through the, through the, uh, the greenhouse there. And he was talking about Psalm 23 and verse 4. I've never heard this. This was great. He said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If you go read verses 1 through 3, Jerry pointed out, you don't see any dark clouds. You don't see any death. Verses 1 through 3 is green pastures and sunny days and bright, you know, bright shining mornings and, and, uh, and quiet waters. And then what happens in verse 4? He called it an even though kind of day. Has anybody in here had an even though day? Or even though week. Or an even though year. And you get to the end of the calendar and you say, boy, I can't wait to flip it over to January. Things are going to be different. It's not always the case. Right? Life doesn't magically shift because we flip a calendar or change it out. And now it's January 1. Some things carry over and continue on. Some of them are the result of the consequences of our sin. And we carry those with us. Some of the suffering we bring on ourselves is our own. Some of it has nothing to do with anything that we chose. It's what God places in our path. And somehow we process it through what the New Testament talks about being ultimately for our good and ultimately for His glory. And He brings glory out of that suffering. How does that work? I don't fully understand that. I dare say you don't either. You've walked through some even though days in verse 4, I'm sure, where you said, boy... This is an awful, deep, dark cavern, a cave that I'm stuck in. How much longer, God? Well, you know what? That's a good question, isn't it? You know why it's a good question? Go read Psalm 13. 
Go read some of the Psalms in the lamenting section of the Psalter. How long, O Lord, are you going to let this keep going on? There are Psalm 23, verse 4 days where it says, even though. But you know what? The rest of that says, I know you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We don't get stuck there because he's leading us to an eternal weight of glory one day that we will inherit in heaven. You say, man, I'm, I'm really suffering. Listen to Paul. 2 Corinthians 11. Don't miss this. He was flogged how many times? Five. How many times was he beaten with rods? Three. I'm not talking about a ruler across the knuckles. I'm talking about taking a rod and beating over his back to the point that some historians say he was likely crippled over and he couldn't stand up straight because he'd received so many beatings at the hands of the Jews. He got stoned one time. He was shipwrecked three times. He floated on driftwood out in the open sea for 24 solid hours. He faced natural disasters, dangers, robbers, sleepless nights. He did time in prison, rough prison. We're not talking about three meals a day and, and, and an hour to, to get out and you know, walk around the yard. We're talking about real, real, real bad squalid, squalor type conditions. He went hungry. He said, I was out in the cold, not to mention the daily pressure of the churches are upon me. So when did his old buddy start hatching this assassination plot? When that happened, what did he say? Well, just add that right to the list. Now they're out to kill me. These were the guys I used to run with, and now they want me dead. 2 Corinthians 4, he says, but we don't give up. But we don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, what is our inner person doing? Being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction. Our momentary, momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable Eternal weight of glory. So he says this. We don't focus on what's seen, but what is what, church? Unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So does suffering mean you're doing something wrong? Not always. Sometimes it may. But sometimes we suffer because we're doing things right. It doesn't mean God's out to get you because, you know, some things are going back. God's not tossing lightning bolts at your feet. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus suffered, did he not? And Jesus got it all right. Saul's new life made him some new enemies. Fourth one, we're moving quickly. Barnabas commends Saul to the brothers. Saul goes back to Jerusalem and no one's buying what he's selling. Would you like to buy some? Nope, go away. We heard about you. No one's buying what he's selling. Nobody wants anything to do with him until who shows up? The son of encouragement. And that's who he was. Humanly speaking, he made all the difference in his ministry. He needed, he needed someone to come along and instead of shoving him out the door, pull him in and put his arm around him and say, I got your back. I'm here for you. I got your back. And he puts his name on the line. When I got my first car, you know what my dad did? What did he do on that loan? Co-signed it. Why? I, I couldn't hack it on my own. 
But he put his name on that and he was saying, if he defaults, I'm going to make good on it. He was putting his arm around me, so to speak, and saying, I'm making sure that this thing is going to be good. Barnabas does that in a sense. He had his back. Tony Merida again says this, the investments Barnabas made took time and they took risk and they took humility. They took time and risk and humility. I love Barnabas, don't you? Now listen, Paul and Barnabas, later on, they had a split. They had a disagreement. They went different ways. I don't think they parted being friendship, being friends, but they decided we can't serve together right now. But I don't think he ever forgot Barnabas' place in his life. Let me ask you a question. Has there been a time in your life when a Barnabas came along? Put their arm around you. I got their back. Maybe everybody else was throwing rocks at you. And that person shielded you and put their arms around you. And they took the blows for you. They encouraged you. They gave you a chance. Maybe a second chance. A third chance. An eighth chance. We all need a Barnabas, don't we? Somebody around us needs a Barnabas. God may be calling you this week to be a Barnabas. Maybe instead of being a Caiaphas, we need to be a Barnabas. You say, who was Caiaphas? He was a high priest. He was signing the letters. Maybe we need a Barnabas. Maybe we need more Barnabases in the church, in the community. Maybe we need to step back and look in the mirror and say, God, am I Caiaphas or am I being a Barnabas? And if I'm not, what needs to change so that I can put my arm around somebody who needs me right now? He took a chance on Saul. And listen to me, it didn't just change Saul. It changed an entire city. It changed an entire empire. Barnabas played a huge role in the church. Huge. We look at the gifts in the New Testament, the spiritual gift list, and we say, oh boy, preaching and teaching and leadership. Yeah, that's the A-plus gifts. I don't think any of them are A-plus gifts. I think they're all A gifts. You know why? The Holy Spirit gave them. And you say, well, I just have have the gift of service. I'd rather be behind the scenes folding the cloths or or filling up the the juice for the, the big breakfast or what. That's okay. You know why? If the Holy Spirit gave you that gift to serve Him, His church, the people around you, your community, you know what you do? You offer that gift and you give that gift. Gather, grow, give, and go with the gospel. And the last part, quickly, the result. The church continues to grow. Verse 31 tells us, 30 and 31. When the Jews in Jerusalem tried to kill Saul, so Damascus wants him dead, Jerusalem wants him dead, the brothers there decided, okay, Saul, enough is enough. You're more trouble with us than you are against us. So you got to go. So they get him a one-way ticket out of town, and they send him back where? To Tarsus, where he was from. With Saul off the scene for a little while, things began to settle down. There were some political shifts and changes. In the, you can go study in the historical timeline when that happened. It was like the Jews were restricted, and they couldn't come against the Christians, and the church began to flourish once again. What do we see the church doing continually in the midst of persecution? Growing. Flourishing. Somehow, what did Jesus say in Matthew 16, I think, Matthew 16, 18? I will build 
My church and the gates of hell or Hades will not come against it, will not prevail. The church continued in the fear of God and the encouragement of the Spirit. Let me close with a couple quick observations, maybe some ways we can apply. Number one, Saul was ten times more religious than anybody in this room. He was honest. He was earnest. And guess what? He was dead wrong. Somebody asked me about my story. I said, man, I didn't wreck my life in a ditch with, with you know, drugs and alcohol. I don't have that kind of testimony. You know what my testimony is if I were to share it with you? The grace of God came in and blinded me. And I saw that my good boy efforts of attending church and, and, and memorizing Bible verses and, 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 and going on all the youth trips and all those things, that, that stuff didn't get me into heaven. I would tell you honestly, I feel like in more ways I am a recovering Pharisee. Don't throw rocks at me. Just being honest. God is showing me I need his grace every day to parent. I need it to pastor. I need it to preach. I need it to be a friend. I need it to be a part of a community. I need his grace every single day. Because I'm not good enough. It doesn't matter how honest I am or how earnest I am or how religious I am. And you say, well, I'm involved in 15 religious things around here. There's nothing like that on the checklist in heaven. There's one box. And that's the name of Christ, the blood of Jesus. Was that, did it wash over you to take away your sin? Number two, serving Jesus involves suffering. This is a hard thing to say and a hard thing to hear. As I put it in my notes, I thought, we're going through some family suffering right now. There may be more coming. I don't even want to say it. Not, not being superstitious, but I know that there's a spiritual war, Ephesians 6 says, going on around us. And as I say this, I even know that suffering may be coming my way or your way. It's a hard thing to say and a hard thing to hear. But what did Jesus tell people who came after him? Take up your cross. That's not a head cold, church. Take up your cross. He said, count the cost. We should consider the reward awaiting for us and not look at our feet, what is seen, but look at what is unseen. Number three, God used Barnabas at a crucial time in Saul's ministry. Barnabas showed mercy and grace and he helped him get his start. Two questions. Who's been Barnabas figure? Who's been that Barnabas figure in your life? Thank him. Who does God want to use you to be the Barnabas figure this week? or this month, or this year. Have their back. Don't be Caiaphas. Be Barnabas. Number four. I have this on a note in front of me. In my office. A pastor of 42 years wrote down 22 things that he learned. Of 42 years in ministry. And one of those things was this. Never give up on people. Never give up on people. Have you seen somebody come to Christ? In their 80s, 90s, sure can. You've seen somebody who was hard and far away from Jesus, melted under the grace and love and mercy of the cross. We just read about it. We've got no idea what God is doing behind the scenes. We've got no idea when God's going to turn that corner and they're going to turn that corner. and They run right into each other and they fall to the ground. We have no idea. Never, ever give up 
on people. Let me ask you a question. Who are you tempted to give up on right now? Who are you tempted to give up on right now? Take that to the Lord this morning. Say, Lord, give me the courage and the grace to believe that you're doing something good behind the scenes. 